You'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look at Matthew 26, 26 through 29, then quick jaunt to Mark 14, verses 22 through 25, and then over to Luke chapter 22. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Turn over to Mark chapter 14. We'll read verses 22 through 25. While they were eating, he took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I'll never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup off after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mighty and awesome word. And I pray that you would grant us understanding of the importance of the Lord's Supper, how to rightly interpret and understand what was given and has been passed down through the ages um, through the church. I pray that we would rightly appreciate what has been given to us in the memorial of the Lord's Supper. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can all be seated. Well, it's October of 1529, and two 45-year-old men, who differed only in age by seven weeks, agreed to meet to discuss biblical doctrine and the implications of those truths on the church. The entire region had been abuzz with recent events and, most notably, the reclamation of the gospel. So many wonderful things are happening. People are hearing the true gospel preached. They're being afforded with the opportunity to read the Bible in their own language. Men are heart-searchingly asking questions like, is what we're doing in the church biblical? What does the Bible have to say about what we're doing? The Scriptures had once again been asserted as the only infallible rule for faith and practice. 
by which all these must be judged. And two heroes of the faith agreed to sit down and meet with one another. One had been born into a strict German Catholic family and was groomed by his parents for a legal career. But instead, he became a monk and a professor of theology. He would struggle with a guilty conscience regarding his sin and an intense fear of God that came from that. He yearned for freedom from sin and from his sin's consequences, but he couldn't find any relief. That is, until the Lord opened his eyes to the gospel. The good news that a man can be saved, but only by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. Upon becoming a Christian, he would see the teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church as horribly corrupted and detrimental to people actually truly being saved. He wrote a couple of sets of theses that were den- that denounced abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, but it was his 95 that were posted at the church door in Wittenberg that got him international attention. He translated the New Testament into German. He formulated catechisms for children and for new believers in the common tongue. He wrote many pamphlets that circulated all throughout Europe. He wrote many books. His ministry proclaimed man's utter sinfulness, God's marvelous grace, and that faith in Christ alone is wholly sufficient for a man to be saved. The events of 1517 ensure that his name will be remembered any time that the Protestant Reformation is studied and discussed. Now, the other man that came to this meeting was born in Switzerland. And by the age of 12, he had become an excellent Latin scholar. He entered the university at the age of 14. Kind of sounds like Doogie Hauser, doesn't he? But that was common back in those days. Not many years later, he completed not only his bachelor's degree, but also his master's and was renowned for his linguistic ability and his scholarship. He came to know Christ around the same time as the man that he met with that day. And he spent time, his time as well denouncing the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. He was made the people's priest in uh, Zurich, Grossmünster, and shortly thereafter deviated from the lectionary. Up to that point, everyone who preached on a Sunday was given the text that they were supposed to preach. He deviated from that, away from their selected readings, and began an exposition of Matthew. Verse by verse exposition of Matthew, which was completely strange to anyone around that area. But he saw it to be truly helpful to the church. He initiated a great number of reforms in Switzerland. He authored several key writings and he engaged in several disputations that furthered the Protestant Reformation. Well, in October of 1529, these two men were invited by Philip of Hesse to Marburg Castle in order to bring solidarity to the blossoming Protestant Reformation. There were people protesting what was going on in the Catholic Church. That's why they're called Protestants. And he was wanting to, Philip of Hesse was wanting to kind of unite all of these various forms of Protestantism together. Philip might have had more of a political reason for wanting the gathering than a religious one, because as one in authority, he liked to see there be some sort of united front against the Roman Catholic Church, who not only brought their, their beliefs, but the power of Rome with them. And as the Counter-Reformation was going on, they were trying to stomp out what was going on within Protestantism and any government that was supportive of Protestantism. So, he wanted to get these two guys together. 
You know, if these known leaders of the Reformation, one from Germany and one from Switzerland, could come to agreement, then there'd be a great political front that could even be established against Rome. You may ask by this point, what was causing a divide? It sounds like these two men had so much in common. I mean, they're even born seven months apart. The core of the gospel was being strictly adhered to by both men. And it was being preached. The Bible was being taught. The abuses of the Roman Catholic Church were being denounced. Yes, this is all true. But there was a matter that was a prominent place within corporate worship that counted for a difference between these two men. Several days of discussion ensued, the details of which I'll leave up to you to read in history books. But since I'm told that a picture is worth a thousand words, I'm going to give you two pictures. And then hopefully, you know, that saves us about 4,000 words or something like that. Here you have two depictions of a moment in this discussion, the Marburg Colloquy, as it's referred to. At the center of the action in both of these pictures, you'll see one man who's pointing down at the table and another man whose hands are kind of outstretched like this. Either sometimes depicted upward, sometimes just outward. But one's pointing down at the table. It's something that's written on the table. And the other man has got his hands outright like this. So who are these two men? What is the one man pointing at? Well, by now, those of you who are familiar with this time in church history know for certain who the German is. What's his name? Martin Luther. Very good. Martin Luther. Does anybody know who the Swiss is? Yeah, very good. Zwingli. That's the name. Zwingli. Very good. Ulrich Zwingli is the, is the other man. So here they are talking with one another. It's Martin Luther who's pointing to the table, and it's Zwingli whose hands are outstretched like this. What is it that Luther's pointing at? Well, historically it is recounted that he wrote on the table itself. He wrote onto the table, this is my body. This is my body. And Luther is pointing to this during their discussion. He had written the words on the table to insist that this is where the debate has to center. And you have to defend your position based upon what did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body. He said, what could be more clear or more straightforward? Jesus said, this is my body when he distributed the bread. He believed, Luther believed, that this meant that Jesus was truly present in the sacrament. Zwingli argued that what Jesus meant was, this signifies my body. This represents my body. This stands for my body. Zwingli cited the Greek text. Remember, he was a linguistic scholar. And so he brings out his Greek New Testament and begins to discuss the Greek with Luther. Luther interrupts him and says, no, read from the German or read from the Latin. To which Zwingli says, no, well, this is part of the whole debate here. You keep saying, this is my body. Show me the word is in the Greek translation. Because if you know the Greek, is is not included. Is is not there. It's implied by the text, but it's not present physically. The word isn't actually there. So Zwingli's saying, you're making your whole stand about is, but is isn't even in there. So they begin discussing all of this together. Luther keeps pointing to the table. Zwingli, arms outstretched, saying, it's not to be understood that way. Zwingli posited that Jesus was speaking metaphorically or symbolically here as he often did. He said, you know, we know that Jesus is now resurrected and sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Acts 2.33. He said in John 17, I'm going to no longer be in the world. 
So, so he says, how can you consider Jesus to be physically present with the elements of the Lord's Supper if he's present with the Father? Needless to say, the meeting didn't end the way that Philip of Hesse had hoped. Luther and Zwingli and their respective companions had much on which they agreed, yes. Even on the subject of the Lord's Supper. As a matter of fact, they drafted like 15 points. And of the 15 points, 14 of them they agreed on. There's just one they didn't. And that was exactly how uh, Jesus should be considered or thought about in connection with the actual elements of the Lord's Supper or communion. This is where they had a point of contention. And because they couldn't agree on it, they left from one another on less than harmonious terms. Ever since, one's position on the Lord's Supper has been a large point of difference among Protestants. Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Baptists still maintain these differences to this day. Presbyterians and Baptists are much more close to one another than Lutherans are to the others, but there's still these differences. Were Luther and Zwingli foolish for holding their ground? Is this a matter on which they should have just compromised? And regardless of what happened in history... What should our position be on the subject? Is it a big enough deal to make a stand on? How should we respond to the situation? Remember, if this is an ordinance given by Jesus and meant to present the unity of the body of Christ, it's kind of an awkward thing that it's caused so much division. So how do we handle this? How do we talk about this? Well, one thing is certain. Both Luther and Zwingli were engaged in a very important discussion. And the nature of their argument was very, very healthy. Of first importance to both of these men was understanding God's word rightly. And for this, both they and we, as we are those who benefit from their theological heritage, we can thank the Lord for that. You see, what was not happening there is they weren't pulling out papal encyclicals. They weren't looking at canon law. The discussion was about the Bible. And for that matter, this discussion is at least profitable and helpful that manifested what had happened was at the core of the Reformation. It was a reclamation of the genuine gospel that a man is saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as the Scriptures alone teach. That turned back to the Bible, where the Bible becomes the infallible rule for faith and conduct. This is being manifested very plainly at this discussion. And even should these two men disagree with one another at the end, they held a great number of things in common. I believe this morning permits us just one more example of God's grace shown during the Reformation in times like it, when God's people are awakened to search the Scriptures and to see if these things are so, right? Like those noble Bereans who searched and examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things are so. You see, whether or not we're able to make any progress on this long-standing debate this morning, I'm thankful that we as Christians have been gifted with God's Word and the Holy Spirit who teaches us, who will lead us into all truth. And I pray that as a result of the discussion this morning, we would come to this subject a little bit more informed and hopefully with the proper amounts of humility and graciousness and love towards others. Speaking truth in love, sharpening one another as iron sharpens iron. I want to consider Jesus' words when he first instituted the Lord's Supper, which we still celebrate nearly 2,000 years later in a sermon entitled, A Supper to Remember. A Supper to Remember. We'll look at two points together. The first is, we're going to take a look at the Passover feast 
Because this really does set the table for the rest of the discussion. What was the Passover? Remember, Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover. And then we're secondly going to look at the Lord's Supper and consider how that is a foretaste of glory. So first of all, point number one, the Passover feast setting the table. The Passover feast was a meal of remembrance. And there were there's a certain history that happened whenever the Passover was celebrated. There was a recounting of what God had done in rescuing Israel. This is celebrated every year. God's people would involve themselves in this ceremony whereby they it involved all of the senses. And it reminded them to give thanks to God for His marvelous deliverance because He had brought them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the Promised Land. The Israelites would eat bitter herbs during the Passover feast. It was a reminder of the bitterness of slavery. It was to remind them of how horrible it was while enslaved. They ate mixtures of apples and dates and all of this, which is symbolic of the mortar that they were forced to make in the construction of buildings that Pharaoh had them doing. They ate unleavened bread to remind them that when God did give them deliverance, they had no time even for bread to rise. They had to get out of Egypt immediately. And out they went. They would eat, though, interestingly enough, in a reclined position. This was on purpose, because once they were slaves, but now they had been made free. And the reclined position was the position of a free man, not that of a slave. You see, all of these elements were purposefully selected to remind them of what had happened, what God had done in effecting their deliverance. They're reminded of the tenth plague, specifically the Passover of the death angel and any house that had the blood applied to the doorposts. And so as they ate lamb, they remembered that the only safety they could have is if they were under the blood. Right? The blood provided them with security and safety. It provided a covering for those who were inside the house whenever that blood had been applied to the doorposts. That and only that would provide safety for their firstborn sons. And then we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament history that a lamb's blood represents the cost of sin in general. But the repeated sacrifices of lambs and goats and all of the rest prove that ultimately all of these sacrifices were ineffectual to really, totally, and forever remove man's sin. All of it was a reminder of the price that was demanded as a result of man's sin. Now, the person who hosted the Passover celebration, the feast, was the one who was responsible for accounting the events of the, of the Passover. And often he would even make use of, this is done in family settings, a lot of times he would make use of even children to help recount the tale of what happened. But who's the host at this occasion? Other than Jesus, right? And what a, what a moment that must have been. They're sitting there celebrating the annual feast. And we have Jesus telling us the story of deliverance, right? There he is, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and he's telling the story of God's deliverance for his people. Now, significant elements of the Passover feast were bread and wine. Both of these were very fitting symbols of God's care for his people. You see, bread is a fitting symbol because it speaks to God's provision for his people. It reminded them of the manna in the wilderness. Remember that? What is it? Manna? What is it? Uh, It's the stuff that like, every day we wake up and it's on the ground. Like dew on the ground. We go and collect it. 
God, God provided for his people daily, right? They learned what it was to depend upon God for their daily bread. Maybe some of you have had experiences in your life where you've had a daily bread kind of situation financially before. Sometimes we feel a little bit uh, distanced from that due to God's blessing. But they learned that daily bread meant just that. God had provided and sustained his, his own people while going through the wilderness on a daily basis. Bread is symbolic of how God is ongoingly faithful to take care of the needs of His people. Bread is still considered that way today. What about wine? Wine in the Old Testament is always a symbol of joy. And it reminds us that God not only takes care of our needs, but He superabundantly blesses us. He not only gives us resources to survive, but He adds to them joy and delight and beauty and sweetness. When God gave Israel the promised land, the land was, we're told, flowing with milk and honey, right? Flowing with milk and honey. That description says that the land was not only functional, but enjoyable, right? God not only made a functional place for His people to live, but an enjoyable place. Are you glad that God not only gives us pancakes, but He gives us syrup? You know, He not only gives us waffles, but He gives us powdered sugar. I get you all hungry right now. You know, He not only... You know, he gives us ice cream, but he gives us chocolate sauce and whipped cream and a cherry on top. You know, those are the kinds of moments, right? I mean, ice cream alone is a treat, but a cherry and whipped cream and chocolate sauce. Oh, now we're in a whole other world, right? God not only makes a functional world, but he's made a beautiful one. We've all experienced basic provision and we've been thankful for it. There perhaps have been moments in which you've experienced someone who's gone above and beyond to make something special. And you've experienced the joy of that as well. Think about it for just a moment. God is the creator of all of this. He not only made an extremely well-oiled machine when He created the world, but He arrayed it with beauty. He not only gave for our needs, He gave for our joy. He gave for our delight. You see, bread and wine have both those in them both daily sustenance, but also joy and delight. Think of how many examples you have of this in your life. Uh, many of you can look to your spouse and realize this, right? When God gave me my wife, He not only gave me a supporter, someone who is a wonderful, practiced midwife and a wonderful wife and mother, but He also gave me a strong woman of integrity and a beautiful one. And He not only provided for my my needs, but He gave me something beyond that. Something that is a joy and a delight. How many of you have engaged in jobs that you felt that way? This provides for my daily bread, but I enjoy it. I get to pour out my life into it. Some of you might have to look in other places for that at times. But think about it. God, God provides us not only with basic provision, but then He gives us joy and delight. He takes joy in us finding our joy in Him. And God has done an amazing thing in the world that He has created. Well, the Passover is that kind of celebration. God's not only provided for our needs, but He's given us joy and delight. Now, the Passover, though, was really an appetizer of things to come. It was really just an appetizer. Passover was an annual feast. It was something that Israel, all of Israel, looked forward to every year. But we're told in this text that Jesus was especially looking forward to this Passover. 
It's, it's emphasized to us in the Greek with two words that have the same root. It, it comes across like this, that God or Jesus yearningly yearned or he desired with desire for this Passover. That's the kind of way that this is communicated. It's translated by many translations, earnestly desired. But it's like he desiringly desired this Passover. He was super looking forward to it. Now, this is kind of like, you know, a child before Christmas morning, right? They don't want to sleep all night because they're just so excited about the next morning. Jesus is looking forward to this Passover. Well, why? Well, we know that Jesus had made proper preparations for this Passover. But by that, I don't mean just merely that an upper room had been furnished and ready to go and all the supplies had been gotten. But I'm talking about the bigger picture. There was a whole lot that was culminating now in these last couple of days of Jesus' life here on earth. He knew it was all coming to this crescendo. The time is now impending. And this is now his last meal. This is why it's referred to by many as the Last Supper. Thank you. Yes, the Last Supper. Jesus is excited to eat this Passover with his disciples. Because he knows that events are now coming together. Everything was happening according to God's timetable. And now he's about to provide his disciples with an ongoing memorial. At this moment, Jesus is going to transform Passover into something totally different. Because Passover as a, as a memorial was about to kind of come to its fulfillment. And now a new memorial would be set up. A memorial that not only Jews would celebrate in, but Gentiles as well. Because it spoke to a much greater rescue. A much greater deliverance. Not just a deliverance from physical slavery, but a deliverance from spiritual slavery. That brings us to point number two. The Lord's Supper, a foretaste of glory. You see, the last Passover becomes the first supper. Sometimes when we call it the Last Supper, we could also call it the First Supper, right? Because in some senses, it was the Last Supper for Jesus before going to the cross. But it's also the First Supper ever initiated and what we still enjoy to this very day. It was no surprise to Jesus' disciples that he would pass bread and wine at the Passover celebration. This is all part of that celebration that they would remember every, every year. But what is unique to this occasion is what Jesus does with the traditional elements. He gives them a completely new meaning. He takes traditional elements and He invests them with new significance. And I'm sure that not all of that significance was picked up on by the disciples at the time. But by the time of the writing of this, they had gotten it. They understood what Jesus was doing. Jesus says, from now on, you will do this in remembrance of Egypt? In remembrance of deliverance from Egypt and slavery? No. You'll do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, from now on, you will do this in remembrance of me. Passover's fuller significance, Jesus delineates for us, is found in him. Jesus explains that the bread is his body given for us. Jesus gives what is perhaps the most common part of a meal's special significance. He attached the idea of His body sacrificed and given for them with the breaking of bread. Now, we don't know exactly when this came up in the discussion of the 
Passover feast. We don't know at what point he broke bread and distributed it and said, this is now my body. We're not sure of that. But it is interesting that of all things for Jesus to point to on the Passover table, he points to the bread. I mean, this being a Passover feast and the temple still being in existence, what would have been most certainly present is lamb. But Jesus doesn't point to the lamb and says, this is my body. He points to the bread. And an interesting question as to why that is. We do know that just prior to this occasion, Jesus has made some prophetic announcements. One in particular regarding the destruction of the temple. And with the destruction of the temple, there would be no more sacrifices. Isn't it fascinating that you could say historically, Jesus knowing what's going to happen with the temple, if he said that the lamb is now him, remember him when you eat the lamb, well, when the lamb's not eaten anymore at the Passover, then guess what? Then he would be not no longer remembered. So that could be one answer to it. I think there's an even more fundamental and important answer. It's because he's the lamb of God. He's the once and for all sacrifice. We no longer need a sacrifice again and again and again and again. The sacrifice is once for all was accomplished in Jesus. So he points to the bread and says, when you break bread, you'll remember me. Remember me when you break bread together. Bread, symbolic of God's provision for his people, is now connected with Jesus' body. Jesus says, I'm God's provision for you. I'm God's provision for you. You couldn't make it on your own. You are doomed without me. But with me, it is sufficient. Only the Lamb of God was truly able to forgive sinners by taking their sin upon Himself and dying in their place. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the one who sustains you. So it's interesting that the old bloody symbol of the Lamb is now replaced by bread in a cup. Passover pointed forward, ultimately, to Jesus. But now that Jesus' body has been broken and His blood poured out, no other lamb is necessary, or for that matter, appropriate. So bread and fruit of the vine are given to us to look back and remember. The cup, Jesus says, is the new covenant in His blood. He says, being poured out for the many. He says, one, poured out for you. Another says, poured out for the many. Another one says, poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Between the three Gospel accounts. We see here that Jesus says that the cup is now the new covenant being made with you. In my blood. Now this makes a connection again with the Old Testament. Covenants were sealed with blood. Oftentimes even pieces of animals might be split and parties would walk through the middle of the pieces to symbolize if I break this thing, then so be that to me. Like, what happened to that animal? Be it upon my head. May I die should I break this covenant. Well, God had made covenants with His people in the Old Testament. Had God's people kept the covenants? Their side of No, no, no. They broke it repeatedly. And so we see an Old Testament system of sacrifices put in place by the Lord. But all of this just picturing that there would be a greater sacrifice yet to come. And a new covenant. A new covenant. There's mention of this. Probably the most famous mention of it in the Old Testament it comes in Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to read that to you. You can flip over there if you want to. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Here we see Jeremiah announcing that there's a new covenant that God is going to set up. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, 
although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. What's held in common between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the requirement that the forgiveness of sins can only happen by the shedding of blood. Jesus says, this New Covenant is coming in My blood. Only through Me is this New Covenant available to you. Now, we're so longly familiar with the Lord's Supper that we hardly even think about it when we say, you know, this is My body which broke for you. This is the New Covenant in My blood. But understand, to a Jewish mindset, what did Moses have to say about drinking blood? Big taboo, right? It was prohibited. Jesus says, this is my blood, blood of, my co- of, of the covenant. We just think of that, oh yeah, Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Okay, we just do that. But imagine at that moment when Jesus says this, how much that must have just stood out to his disciples. But Jesus says, the only way possible for this new covenant to take place is for my blood to be poured out. The new covenant had come, but only as a result of Jesus' death. Now, Jesus says that this covenant is for many. My life laid down, my blood poured out for many. For many. This is one of those moments where it's again a good reminder of the doctrine of particular redemption. We don't see here Jesus saying, I poured out my blood for all. He says, I poured out my blood for the many. (laughs) For the many. Jesus died for those who would repent and believe. There are several texts in the New Testament that speak to the word all. Like, for example, in 1 John, where uh, he's the propitiation, propitiation for all. And people look at those and go, well, does that mean that Jesus died for every single individual? Well, there's a problem with believing that, because if he did, then the question is, then why does anyone go to hell? If everyone's sins are forgiven, then why is anyone punished for eternity in hell? How could Jesus' propitiation be for all? But that's what the Bible says, right? It's for all? Well, yes, it says for all. But it's all a matter of defining what do you mean by all. Remember, in that time especially, one of the particular things that was being put forward by the disciples and those who followed them was the, the fact that Jesus had come to die not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles, right? For those outside of the nation of Israel, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So Jesus lays down his life for the many, which includes Jews and Gentiles. He says in another place, I lay down my life for my sheep. And then he says, there are other sheep that are not of this fold. I also lay down my life for them. Who are them? Who are the other sheep not of this fold? The Gentiles, right? So Jesus has laid down his life both for Jews and for Gentiles. Let me clarify too. A lot of people, when you talk about this idea of particular redemption, that Jesus died in the place of sinners, specifically that he came to save. Some people look at that statement and they get concerned by it. They go, well, wasn't Jesus' death enough to pay for everyone's sin? Absolutely. We're not making a statement about the sufficiency of Jesus' blood. It is sufficient to save every single human being. It's not a question about Jesus' ability or power. As a matter of fact, it's really about that very matter that causes us to take pains to describe this. 
You see, if Jesus died for everyone, but not everyone is saved, that says something about Jesus' power. In other words, he's not able to save the people he died for. But if Jesus is actually omnipotent, if he is actually powerful, able to do what he sets his mind to, then everyone he dies for, he saves. You see, the difference is this. When Jesus went to the cross, did he merely allow the potential for people to be saved? Or did he actually save people? Did he go to the cross to provide a hypothetical salvation? Or an actual salvation? You see, he died to save us. And he doesn't fail to accomplish his purpose. He actually saves his children. This is how powerful Jesus is. No one slips out of his hands. He actually dies. This is how then all the Bible fits together, right? God the Father and the belief regarding election that God has chosen people unto salvation. He then sends his son to die for them and the Holy Spirit regenerates their heart. You see, the persons of the Trinity, the Godhead, are all working in harmony, in unison, together. God accomplishes his purpose. And no one can pray foul to God, right? Because those who aren't saved get what they want. They desired, ultimately, destruction by their behavior. And we all deserve it anyway, right? We all deserve hell. That anyone receives grace and mercy and eternal life is grace. (laughs) It's pure, unmerited favor, something that we don't deserve and definitely could never earn. Jesus says, I lay down, my blood is poured out for the many. Real quickly, I want to... um, just felt like this morning I wanted his a little bit more preponderance of teaching the sermon today. I want to make sure that everyone does have at least a, a tip of the iceberg understanding of the various views of the Lord's Supper. So you kind of just understand what's the difference. Like what what was Martin Luther arguing with Zwingli? How does that transfer today? And what were they both arguing against the Roman Catholic Church? What does the Roman Catholic Church believe about communion? about the Mass. What, do, what is Roman Catholic teaching on that? So let's start with that real quick. What is the Roman Catholic view? Well, they believe something is called transubstantiation. It's a big word. Several of you have heard it before. Transubstantiation. That word was articulated around the 1200s. Like around 1215 that the Roman Catholic Church made that the official view. Now, if you talk to a Roman Catholic, they'll say, oh, that was always what we believed, but it was officially put in place in 1215. Um, just be, be wary of that. Often Roman Catholics will say, well, this is what we've always believed, but the Roman Catholic Church now just officially made it dogma or doctrine. Um, but if you look at church history, you'll see that the Roman Catholic Church did not officially believe all of that all that time. Um, that's one of the sad things. Sometimes Protestants are scared of looking at like the early church fathers and stuff like that because it's like, oh, man, that's all Catholic. No, <laughs> they were not all Roman Catholic. Like Roman Catholic was Roman Catholic in the 1200s, 1500s, right? There's a lot of change that happened over those course of years. But anyway, I digress a little bit. So, 1215, transubstantiation becomes the official view of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean, that big word? It means that they believe that when the priest blesses the host, uh, the Eucharist, uh, the bread, that it actually becomes Jesus' flesh. Now, they're real careful to say that it still looks like a wafer. It still tastes like a wafer. Everything about it, all of the external outward form of it, it still looks like a wafer. But, in essence, it's actually Jesus' flesh. Literally. This is Jesus' flesh. And similarly, with the cup, with the priest's blessing... It looks like wine, it tastes like wine, it smells like wine, but it's actually Jesus' blood. 
the essence of the thing has changed. Now, a whole lot of this comes from Greek philosophy and the idea that you can separate apart the outward form from the essence of a thing. That's what they're trying to do here. To say that Jesus' actual body and His actual blood are being eaten and drank. By the way, they then believe that this is a reenactment of Jesus' sacrifice. So, each Mass that is celebrated, Jesus is, in a sense, sacrificed anew. There is a new sacrifice of Jesus with every week. And again, it looks a lot like the Old Testament, right? Where sacrifices over and over and over again. But, but Jesus, He made a once-for-all sacrifice. He no longer needs to be sacrificed again. By the way, this also led to some other interesting things within the Roman Catholic Church. For example, once this became Jesus' flesh and His blood, it then became object for worship. They would venerate then the host. It is now worshipped as Jesus. The bread is now Jesus' body and the blood is, or the, the wine is Jesus' blood. So they're actually worshipped as Jesus, which a lot of the Protestant Reformation is all like, this is idolatry. You're making idols in the church out of bread and wine. It also caused some of the priests, is another consequence, to withhold the cup from common people. Why? Because they were scared that they would spill Jesus' blood. So they started only giving out wafers and they held back the cup of the Lord's Supper from people enjoying it. This is another thing that the Protestants were outraged about. It's interesting that Jesus, in the depiction of the Lord's Supper, he says, when he comes to the cup, he says, a drink of it, all of you. And they are, it's like in Texas, all y'all, all y'all drink the cup, right? And so, so the, the Protestants are like, hey, why are you holding back the cup of the Lord's Supper? They're, well, the Roman Catholic retort to that was, well, Jesus is fully present in both elements. So if you just take the bread, it's like as if you've had the bread and the wine. Again, just manipulations and gymnastics that they're getting around here. Now, the idea in the Roman Catholic Church then is that this becomes a sacrament. And they use the word sacrament to say that it dispenses grace. You receive grace by ingesting the bread and ingesting the wine. And their point is that it operates just by the doing. It has nothing to do with your faith. It has nothing to do with what you believe. As long as you go through the process, you're good. Now, if you miss a Mass, you're in trouble. <laughs> but you make the Masses and you take the Mass. You know, mass at the center of that whole thing is the communion. Um, you must take it. But they're, they're, uh, even the Latin was ex operare operato. So, by the doing, it is done. <laughs> so, just by taking it, you're all good. That was their belief. Now, again, this is causes many objections from the Protestants. Let me just respond to that in a couple of different ways, really quick. First of all, this seems to ignore the fact that when Jesus first institutes the, the First Supper, right, his last Passover, the First Supper, when he says, this is my body broken for you, Jesus' physical body is still there. Like, he's right there in the room. Do you think the disciples were like, oh, wow, this is actually transformed into Jesus' body? Do you, think they, do you have any clue that they would think that sort of thing from that? Jesus' blood is still pulsing through his veins. He's right there, literally, body and blood, in the room. It also seems to neglect the fact that Jesus often spoke with metaphorical and symbolic language in his ministry. 
John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. Now, do Roman Catholics say that Jesus is literally a door swinging on a hinge? Nobody would do that. No, he's like the entrance way. He's the way to God. I mean, Jesus spoke with metaphorical language. He said, I am the good shepherd. Did he actually go out with sheep and herd sheep around? Out in the... No. Um, he said, I am the way, the truth, and life. The way, that word way, haras, it means way or road or path. Is Jesus a path? Is Jesus a road? Again, it's metaphorical, right? He, he is a path in the sense that he's the only way to salvation and justification with God. We also see that this whole transubstantiation belief falls victim to what often people fell victim to with Jesus' words when they interpreted him in a literalistic fashion. Like, here's a quick, quick sampling. John 2. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Well, the people who heard Jesus said, they go, how's he going to destroy the physical temple right there? I mean, I think, and how long it takes to build that thing? It's like, way longer. You're going to be able to build it in three days? Jesus is referring to his own body there. Destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. I'll rise again from the dead in three days. He's making a reference to his death and resurrection. Another one, Jesus says to Nicodemus, a man must be born again. Nicodemus goes, how do I climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? How is this possible? Jesus is speaking spiritually, metaphorically. Um, another one, Jesus says to his disciples in John 4, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples are like, where did he pick up his food? Where did he come from? Again, he's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking about his... The, the sustenance that he receives from God the Father. He says in John 6, I'm the bread coming down from heaven. This is a really important one. I'm the bread coming down from heaven. Eat this bread and you'll live forever. And this bread is my flesh. Now, there were some people in that setting right there that walked away going, like, this guy's cannibalistic? What is he talking about? Yeah, Jesus wasn't saying, actually, take a bite out of my arm, John. You know, Peter, here's a finger. He's not saying that sort of thing. right? He, he's saying, but you have to actually... Receive me. You have to receive me. That's what he's trying to say. And we use we use language like that all the time. The point I'm making is that the Roman Catholic Church is not being consistent. Because when you come to those texts, well, maybe the John 6 one they'll want to interpret the other way. But certainly for the door and the way and all the rest, they see that as metaphorical language. All right, one other thing. The point, ultimately is not that bread and wine become Jesus, because that's to make too much of bread and wine. It's that bread and wine point to Jesus. It's not that bread and wine become Jesus. It's that bread and wine point to Jesus. Who's greater, the bread and the wine or Jesus? Jesus is greater. So the bread and wine are to function in such a way that we don't worship bread and wine, but that we look to Jesus, who they're pointing us toward. For example, John 15, Jesus says that he is the vine and you are the branches. What he means to say by that is just as branches find their sustenance and livelihood and fruitfulness in connection with the vine, so all of his followers will find their fruitfulness, their sustenance in connection with him. The purpose isn't to worship vines, but when we see vines, to think of Jesus. And now just as the vine supports the branches, so Jesus supports us. And apart from him, we can do nothing. Right? So the image is supposed to point us to Jesus. The metaphor is descriptive in that way. Not the other way around. Sadly, it's sad when we reverse metaphors where then we end up worshipping the thing rather than the creator. That sounds like something that happens, doesn't it? Romans 1 describes that situation. Jesus says, get this one too. 
after having just given out the elements, he then says, no longer will I drink of the fruit of the vine. He's already blessed it. He's already given it out. And what is he calling the stuff in the cup? Is he saying, I'm not going to drink my blood anymore? He still calls it what? Fruit of the vine. Again, he's still referring to it as it is. Because all that it was still was wine. But it's a symbol and a picture, a memorial of Jesus' body and blood. Take note of this. A literal interpretation of Scripture takes into account literary elements. Okay? When we say that we uphold a literal interpretation of Scripture, we have to take into account literary functionality. When a metaphor is given, we need to read metaphors as metaphors. If you read a metaphor in a literalistic fashion, you're not reading the text literally. You must take into account the literary features of anything that you read. It's like if you're reading a poem and it's talking about, you know, I don't know, I'm horrible at poetry, but it's talking about some sort of figurative language, you, you have to read it figuratively. If you read it literalistically, you're not getting the point that the author is trying to make. So that's the point. We're after what is the in, intended meaning of the text. And we have that phrase repeated in Luke, do this in remembrance of me. We see in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians, um, by the way, I was off one chapter there this morning. Thank you for the spirited reading of chapter 10. should have been chapter 11. Um, but if you read chapter 11 later on, that will make a little bit more sense. If you read chapter 11 a little bit later on, you'll see that there is a discussion from the Apostle Paul on the discussion of the Lord's Supper. And when you, when you read that, you'll see that Paul is picking up on the same situation. Okay, so that's the Roman Catholic view. Quickly, what is the Lutheran and Zwinglian view, or Lutheran and the rest of Protestantism view on this? Well, Luther rejected the doctrine of transubstantiation just as Zwingli did. He went to great lengths to uphold Jesus's. Um, this is not actually becoming Jesus' body and blood. But meanwhile, he wanted to say that Jesus was physically present with the sacrament. So he used words like this. Jesus is present in or with or under the sacrament. The way he was trying to describe this. I honestly think if some of this would be as Luther was, had been Roman Catholic for so long, I think it was a hard thing for him to divorce some of those understandings from his mind. He made a lot of changes. And I think this is one of those where he's really having a sticking point. But the illustration that's sometimes used for Lutherans is that it's like as if you had a sponge that was soaked in water. So the sponge is still sponge, just like the bread is still bread and the wine is still wine. But Jesus is like the water in the sponge. He's present with and in and through and under the elements. So Luther's making a distinction that we're not actually eating, the bread isn't actually becoming Jesus' flesh and blood. However, that Jesus is present in such a way that he's so wrapped up in the sacrament that he, and he, that he made a big deal. He's physically present in the sacrament. He's physically present in the bread and the wine. Now, this caused, this is why Zwingli and Luther then had a big debate. Zwingli saying, hey, Jesus rose again from the dead and he ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's gone out of this world. How can you say now he's physically present here? He's physically present there. And so Luther then put forward his belief in what's called the ubiquity of Christ. That Jesus, in his 
flesh, in his humanity, can be present everywhere, just as he's present everywhere in his divinity. This becomes a further discussion between the two men. It's interesting, looking back on all of this, Burkhoff makes, though, I think a really important objection regarding Luther's view. He said this, Luther has Jesus saying, in effect, he says, Luther actually isn't holding to a literalistic reading either, because he would instead really be saying this, this accompanies my body. Not this is my body, but it accompanies my body. My body accompanies the thing. Again, it's not exactly an is relationship like the Roman Catholic Church wants to make. Saul was trying to, Luther, for Luther, he wanted to make sure that Jesus was somehow physically present still in the elements. Now, the rest of Protestantism, Zwingli being a prime example of this, said, no, Jesus is, has risen again from the dead. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, making intercession for us there. Can Jesus spiritually be present with us? Absolutely. And certainly he's spiritually present then with the Lord's Supper, but not physically present in the Lord's Supper. And there's the distinction. For Zwingli, he said, primarily what this is is a memorial. In Zwingli's church, what he did, they had an altar, just like Roman Catholic churches. They all had altars. Well, when all this is going down and all the Protestant Reformation is occurring, he replaced the altar with the table. He said, we're not, we're not sacrificing Jesus. Jesus is once and for all done. We have a table. We're enjoying the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table together. It's a memorial. It's a remembrance of Jesus' once and for all death for our sins. Again, this is not to say that Jesus is aloof from that time of worship. Because that was one of the arguments from Luther. He said, well then, that divorces Jesus from the celebration. And Zwingli is saying, no, not at all. He's still present spiritually in this. If Jesus is present, let's say it this way. If Jesus is present when two or three gather together in his name, then certainly he's present when the church gathers together to worship him in a time of the Lord's Supper. So, when we say that we believe as Baptists in a memorial view of the Lord's Supper, what we're saying is that we hold to the idea that the Lord's Supper is symbolic. The bread and the cup symbolize Jesus' body and blood. It's a remembrance of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Is Jesus present in the Supper? Absolutely. Spiritually, He is present. Just as He's present with all of His children, and certainly when two or three gather together in His name, certainly He's present when we participate in the Lord's Supper together. Jesus intended to provide his church with an ongoing remembrance of his sacrifice on their behalf. And and it's a reminder that we must embrace him in faith. When Jesus says things like, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, the idea here is that you embrace him in faith. You see, for us, faith is important to this equation. Remember for the Roman Catholic, just the doing of the thing, it's done. Not for us. We'd say, if the heart matters, what you believe and what you think matters. As it comes to the Lord's Supper. That's why we ask those who aren't Christians to not participate in the Lord's Supper, right? Because it's for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that this is a memorial, a remembrance of what he's done on our behalf. Now, Jesus also indicates in this in the text here that he's not going to drink of this fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. Paul picks up on this in First Corinthians as well, and the idea that until he returns, we celebrate his death until he returns. What's interesting is just as the Passover was a predecessor to the Last Supper, which then became the First Supper and the Lord's Supper, 
Understand that the Lord's Supper is also not the end of the story. That's why I just call it a foretaste of glory. It's just the beginning, because the best is yet to come. Jesus has saved the best for last. Have you ever done that? I don't know what's with me. It's probably an indication of my love of food. But have you ever eaten a, have you ever eaten a cinnamon roll and you ate all around the outside first and then you saved the gooey middle for the last? Or, you know, Oreo cookies. How many of you guys really like the cream? You know, you, you know, like the double stuff, doubled. You know, that the quadruple stuff. You know, um, uh, How many of you have done that with desserts and stuff of that nature? We save the best for last, right? You eat all the rest. You eat your vegetables first. You get those out of the way. And then you, you eat the steak after that, right? So, Jesus saves the best for last for us as well. He says, I'm not going to drink of this fruit of the vine again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is not just some mere hopeful feeling from Jesus. He's speaking confidently about the future. He will not drink this again until the coming of the reality of the consummation of the kingdom of God. In other words, it's not over with this. You're going to remember my death through this memorial, but that's not the end of the story. I'm not going to drink this again until this day when everything consummates, when my Father brings everything to its historical end. You see, we still await the new heavens and new earth where our souls will be granted resurrection bodies and will be gloriously reunited with believers throughout the centuries, all united around the Lord's table. It's even described that way as the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to enjoy a feast that is literally out of this world, right? And this will be the best part. This is what all of creation is longing for. You see, the Lord's Supper is helpful in the meantime. It's a remembrance of where our security, our faith, our hope rests in Jesus, what He has done. But there's also a note of the Lord's Supper where there's still a moment of anticipation. It itself is an appetizer, awaiting for the main course that is still yet to come. You see, just as the Lord's Supper not only looks back to the Passover and God's deliverance of His people out of Egypt... And it it also looks back to the deliverance that Jesus has given us for forgiveness of sins through His death on the cross. It also looks forward to His return. Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose again from the dead. And He ascended into heaven where He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Where He's presently preparing a place for us. And at the proper time, He'll come back for us. He's going to return and He's going to judge the quick and the dead. And He's going to bring all of His children home. All those in Christ will participate in the marvelous marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 